This is a 980 CKNW podcast. Welcome back to the Sunday Night Health Show. Maureen McGrath hosting this program for you. We're into the second hour of the Sunday Night Health Show talking about lots of different health subjects. We are going to get into relationships a little bit deeper, what men want, um, and uh, polyamorous relationships, and how much time do you actually have with your doctor? Is that an issue for you? Do you get your uh, concerns across to your doctor, and do you feel like your doctor is listening to you? And are you in the group? that uh, may benefit most from seeing the doctor. But right now, I just want to continue on a little bit about uh, turning up to the emergency department in acute respiratory distress, potentially at the end of your life, having been diagnosed with a terminal disease or illness or uh, cancer or um, having never had the conversation about what you want to be done. And at times like that, when emotions are running high, uh, patients and clinicians, you know, sometimes they're not thinking because they haven't uh, slowed down in order to think that. And they don't realize that the older a person is, the less likely they are to survive an emergency department intubation. And so I had reviewed a study um, in the first hour, at the end of the first hour, and this physician has come up with an illustration, a physician who uh, had done the study uh, who has come up with an illustration about what you can expect after intubation. And intubation is essentially a breathing tube. It's a plastic tube that's inserted in to the um, mouth, into the trachea, into the lungs, and um, you're given ventilated breaths or continuous positive airway pressure, CPAP. Um, and so uh, but when you are between 65 and 74 years old, and he's done this beautiful illustration um, in with showing the different percentages. Um, about 31% of people who are intubated after an emergency department intubation um, will survive and return home. 40% will survive and be discharged to a nursing home. And 29% will die in the hospital. At the, for 75 to 79-year-old people... 34% will die in the hospital after having an emergency department intubation. 43% will survive and be discharged to a nursing home. And 23% will survive and return home. In the 80 to 84-year-old category, 19% will survive and return home. 41% will survive and be discharged to a nursing home. And 40% will die in the hospital. And this is a thing clinicians and patients think intubate him, intubate her um, so that we can prolong their life. But it doesn't necessarily, uh, according to his this research study that looked at half a million people over eight years or so, um, it doesn't necessarily mean it will prolong your life. In fact, you may die. And if you are in the 85 to 90-year-old category, and many people in this age category are intubated in hospitals, 43% will die in the hospital. 42% will survive and be discharged to a nursing home, a, a fate worse than death. <laughs> a lot of people uh, want to age gracefully in their own home. Aging in place is so much more aligned with quality of life. And in the 85 to 90 year old category, 15% only will survive and return home. And if you are over the age of 90, 50% will die in the hospital. 36% will survive and be discharged to a nursing home and 14% will survive and return home. 
So these numbers are staggering. And it's this is the kind of conversation, this illustration is something that clinicians need to talk to their patients about, especially if they've been diagnosed with uh, terminal illness, because uh, when emotions run high, when people are panicking, when some people are not ready to let go, some family members are not ready to let go, um, th- this is no time to make a decision. But learning something about the patient as the clinician, like what is it, what is most important to your parent, for example, or or to your loved one, whomever that may be, and learning a little bit about that um, may help a clinician to guide um, the the experience, uh, the end of life experience for the patient. And so if, if communication, if being surrounded by family and being able to, to talk is important, then being intubated is not potentially the best decision for somebody. Um, all of this has been the survey and the, this research study and this illustration is by Kai Auchi, and he is a um, emergency medicine physician at Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston. Uh, so this is just something uh, to think about, but you know, they're often intubating patients who are having hospice care at home. So it's already been decided the end of life, but then people may panic and um, maybe not everybody in the uh, family understands or is at the same place. But as a physician told me once, uh, he said, you know, we help people to live and we need to help people to die as well. I was having a particularly hard time with the death of a uh, 13-year-old child um, of leukemia. She went off to camp and um, three weeks later she died after having um, have, having been diagnosed with acute lymph- lymphocytic leukemia, ALL. And um, she had a, a very, very difficult um, end of life where she was just so thirsty and it was just heartbreaking to watch and and she wasn't um, being given fluids and she was just begging for fruits and she's saying strawberries and watermelons and blueberries and she was so thirsty and and so it was particularly difficult and um, and so he came in and he altered the the end of life care for this child and um, it was at that time that he said you know this this is wrong and we need to um, help her to die and and the parents as you can imagine had just horrific time letting their daughter go uh, and in fact the mom held her for a full eight hours after her daughter had died you can imagine she sends her off to summer camp and um, before she's going to return home after the month she has um, passed away so the mother had a, a very very difficult time of course we put our children outside and it's a little cold and we want to make sure they have a jacket on uh never mind um you know being in a hospital and um you know being given a horrific diagnosis um for a child and so i those words always stuck with me that um yes we do need to help people to live and 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 to live a good quality of life but we also need to help uh them to die 
when it comes to the end. And, and the end of life can be really difficult for a lot of people. And no, no two patient stories are exactly the same. And, and also families deal with it very differently because people can be at different stages of acceptance or being different stages of the grieving process. Some people may or may not uh, be ready to have their parent or their child or their sibling, you know, uh, end their suffering. Um, people can make decisions today um, in terms of uh, their rights to die, um, and and they can make that on their own without maybe their partner. I've I've seen that in my clinical practice as well, where their partner wasn't on board but had to respect the decision because the person just couldn't go on any longer um, with a particular chronic pain condition. So th- it's a tough time, you know. I I'm. I love life and I love to enjoy it and um, and I embrace every minute of it. Um, but, you know, we have difficult times in life and especially when we lose somebody that we love, um, it, there's there's no greater pain. And, um, and, you know, grieving is like the ocean, you know, the tide goes in and the... And, and the tide goes out and, you know, it's, it's with you and, you know, it leaves you and then it, and it returns and, you know, there's no prediction of, um, when that pain, um, will, you know, uh, improve or get better and certain things can trigger, um, your one's grief. Um, and certain, I, I actually lost a, a very, very good friend in a tragic accident. And I saw somebody who looked just like her today, in fact, and um, and I was thinking of, you know, there were so many years that I couldn't actually even mention her name. And I, today I was thinking of all the lovely times we had together. Anyway, so um, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, when you actually go to the doctor with your illness or your complaint or your issue and uh, how much time do you get and why is that and who actually gets more time than you. I am Maureen McGrath and you are listening to the Sunday Night Health Show. Welcome back to the Sunday Night Health Show. Maureen McGrath hosting this program for you. I am going to read a couple of emails uh, for you and then get into um, who doctors spend the most time with. <laughs> Definitely not me. Okay. Um, where is that little email after all? Okay. Here it is. I love this one because, uh, dear Maureen, this isn't why I love this, but thank you for your show. <laughs> okay. You're welcome. I have so many friends that have insomnia apart from melatonin, uh, melatonin, as they find it not particularly effective, are there any other homeopathic things to try? I'm always worried about that word homeopathy. Um, and so, uh, you know, I wouldn't necessarily suggest that. Of course, my number one thing uh, about sleeping better is, of course, just getting under the sheets with somebody. That'll certainly help. <laughs> it does. It relaxes people, takes your mind off things. Uh, have a little sex, have a little nookie with somebody else before you go to bed or with yourself. You don't even actually have to have it with uh, with somebody else. You can have it all by, all by yourself. I changed the words on that one. But um, you know what? Uh, I had heard a sleep doctor speak at a conference one time, and he said that you need to do 30 minutes of exercise a day and get your heart rate up above 120 in order to have in order for that to have an impact on your sleep. So 
there are some just some basic things that you can do before we go to the drugs or the homeopathy homeopathic remedies, which I'm not really sure work because I actually don't know any. But I do know that if you keep a consistent sleep schedule, that will be beneficial. So get up at the same time every day, even on the weekends or during vacation and set a bedtime that is early enough for you to get at least seven hours of sleep. Don't go to bed unless you're sleepy. And if you don't fall asleep after 20 minutes, have sex, then get out of bed. No, just kidding. Um, Get out of bed. You want to establish a relaxing bedtime routine. Of course, take the computers, the iPhones, the uh, tablets, the TVs out of your bedroom because that will just serve to keep you awake. Uh, And you want to use your bed literally for two things only. You know that, right, Andrew? Yes. (laughs) I actually tell a lot of people who like have trouble sleeping, like, let me guess, do you use your laptop on your bed? And they go and they go, yep. And I'm like, yeah, that's why. Exactly. Because your body doesn't know that your bed's for sleeping now. Exactly. And do you know what? They have these, um, I like, uh, they're, they're appealing to me, but <laughs> the cobbler's kids have no shoes. Um, they are uh, like a rolling table that you can actually roll. It's very modern looking. It's a very, you know, it's like a, it, it's like a table that rolls uh from the bottom of your bed to the top. So you, it's like a desk in your well, that's bed. That's not good because it's, then you're not used really, to your bed being for it's, sleeping. Or sex. That's the exactly. other thing. Yeah, exactly. Those are the only two things. So it's not for doing work. Yeah, And it, it's not for like, yeah, anything else. I always tell people like, just don't sit on your bed. Just sit on a chair. Exactly. Get up. And yeah, so I'm refraining from purchasing one of those desks. Good idea. <laughs> For my bed. Um, But you can read a book. That might help. You know, that'll help people uh, to fall asleep as well. Make your bedroom your oasis. Make it uh, quiet and relaxing. You know, spend some money on your bedroom, on the sheets, on the bed. You know, make sure it's comfortable. Lots of pillows because you want to prop yourself up and, you know, uh, you know, uh, uh, some, you know, into different positions. You know, take advantage of those pillows and utilize them for different positions uh, to make sex just that much more enjoyable, like like lock and load or something is a lot of little bit nicer when you've got a whole bunch of pills around. Okay, did we were we weren't doing sex positions on this segment? No, we're doing sleep. Uh, anyway, so you don't want to have a lot of bright light. As uh, exercise regularly, maintain a healthy diet. Avoid uh, consuming alcohol before bedtime. A lot of people think I'll have a drink and that'll help relax me and go to sleep. And but then you wake up a little bit later, so that's not great either. Don't drink coffee in the late afternoon. And you know what? Look at how much coffee you're drinking all day long as well. So that's um, something to consider because people might have, you know, eight cups of coffee. I I had somebody tell me that he cut down on coffee. He said, because by 11 o'clock he was miserable. And this is a really nice guy. And he said he was biting people's heads off. So he had to cut back on his coffee. So if you're biting people's heads off, cut back on your coffee, potentially, you know, one to two cups is fine. Anything in in moderation. So, you know, you might turn up to the doctor's office because you may... You may not realize that you're biting people's heads off, uh, but you might be irritable. Uh, There was a U.S. study that found that just 36% of doctors posed an open-ended question to get patients to talk. After a doctor poses a question such as, what brings you here today, patients get a median time of, do you have any idea how long patients get to answer before the doctor will interrupt? What do you think? Uh, how long patients get to talk before the doctor interrupts? Uh, yeah, yeah. So say the doctor says, hey, how are you? What brings you here today? What do you think? Uh, I'm going to go with 
4.5 seconds. Wow. No, uh, they're better than that. They're okay, actually good. a little okay, bit good. more caring. That's, that is not 11. a reflection on my doctor. My, <laughs> my doctor, she's wonderful. She's fantastic. Okay. But 11 seconds, which isn't a long time. That's, that is also not a long that time. That is not but. a long time. I have to say, it happened to me one time. I actually had injured my tailbone. I think I've talked about this on the show before. So I went into the doctor and I said, I've injured my tailbone. And I, um, and he said, he didn't listen to me at all. And he just said, here, go and have these lab tests to rule out ovarian cancer. I'm like, okay. So I go and I leave and I think about it and I think, you know what? I don't have ovarian cancer. You didn't listen to me. I, and so I went back to him and I said, I have tailbone pain. I need a cortisone injection. Uh, and so he, he did. He said, okay. I said, I don't have any time to do this whole ovarian cancer thing. I don't have that. I don't have any other symptoms, uh, related to that. So sometimes you have to speak up and that, that can't be easy for a lot of people, especially uh, when you go to see a doctor, but a doctor will interrupt you and think that they know what your diagnosis is or what you're talking about, um, within 11 seconds. And so that can be very challenging from the patient perspective because a patient wants to feel comfortable that the physician is there to help and they won't feel that if they're not being heard. So it's important to listen. You know, quite frankly, I'm not a physician. I'm a registered nurse. When patients come into my clinical practice, especially if they're having relationship issues, I literally just sit there. I say, I say, what brings you here or, or who referred you or how did you find out about me? And that's the only question that I ask. And then I let them uh, carry on and tell me. And I literally listen for 15 minutes because they will go on. And I intentionally do that um, because they have to tell their story. They have to share their story. Otherwise, they're not, we're not going to get to the bottom of it. And I learn a lot when I hear, uh, mind you, I have an hour with patients, so that can be helpful. And sometimes that goes over too because I have no healthy limits or boundaries. Um, so <laughs> I actually need some people-pleasing assistance in the coaching department. Department. Um, but, you know, especially patients with multiple problems, so that's difficult. And so the, just in case you were wondering, the people that doctors spend the most time with are the pretty people, of course, the better looking people. There's research to show that, to demonstrate that those people actually get they get put up to first class more, you know, they get seen by no the wonder. doctor more. No kidding. It's so shallow. And I'm Maureen McGrath and you're listening to the Sunday Night Health Show. Welcome back to the final strokes of the Sunday Night Health Show. Maureen McGrath reporting on the different ways we are loving in Canada these days. If, you know, typically you've probably had a romance trajectory that you grew up with, perhaps believing in dating a little bit, finding the one, settling into a committed and monogamous relationship, and of course, live happily ever after with your prince or your princess, all the while maintaining a sizzling hot sex life the entire time, naturally. But if you've ever dated before, gotten married, <laughs> been in a relationship, you realize that might not be the case. So the problem may not be with ourselves, but it might be with the narrative that we have been told to ascribe to. According to one 2016 study, about 20% of people are exploring another kind of a happy ending. Not that kind of happy ending. The kind that involves multiple relationships with multiple people. There are lots of myths about that. And you've no doubt heard about monogamish or non-monogamy. And while there are many forms of it, polyamory is the practice of having more than one romantic or sexual partner at the same time is definitely gaining the most visibility and popularity in our world today. In fact, it was the fourth most frequently searched relationship term on Google in 2017. 
But if even if we're aware that polyamory is a thing, and yes, polyamory is a thing, plenty of us don't understand how it works. In fact, people who practice poly, polyamory have no idea often how it works, and they struggle against some of the assumptions about what it means to be poly. I'm going to talk about some of the myths a little bit uh, in, in a few minutes, actually. But first, uh, Marilisa Racco of Global did some wonderful work this week all about the different ways we love in a five-part series on how alternative relationships are reshaping love in Canada. And on one of those days, she looked at polyamory and she spoke to a couple or a couple talked about how they felt about their feelings, about how they were acting, about how, what it meant and how, when they came to the realization that they may be polyamorous and decided to live that way. So let's have a listen here. I always felt I was polyamorous, um, but I didn't know what that meant. Um, I just thought I was a dog or a jerk. Growing up, you always hear about men cheating on women and, you know, they're just being dogs. Um, I was married at a young age, 21, and um, soon after I started having an affair and I didn't understand why I can be in love with one person and still be in love with another. I didn't lose my love for my wife for the person... Uh, person that I also wanted to be with. Uh, I had a lot of guilt, um, suicide attempt, because I thought I was just a bad person. Later on in life, when I'm hearing more about polyamory and more about that people, other people feel this way, it was like, oh, okay, I'm not just a screw up. You know, maybe other people feel this way and other people are okay with mon- you know, non-monogamy. Well, I was, actually I was in my teens when I uh, realized that monogamy really just wasn't working for me. Um, I had uh, a few different partners at the time when I met um, my husband, now my ex-husband, and I actually left my other partners for him. I didn't cheat on him during our marriage, but I always felt like I was missing something. And when I started talking to him about it, He did not feel the same way, he did not agree, so um, that's one of the reasons I left. Neither of us like to sleep around, I know that sounds odd (laughs) in a polyamory relationship, but to to us it's not about sex, it's about um, actually connecting with other people. You know, we do have some things that we're not comfortable with yet, you know, when you have a new person come to a relationship, uh, like if she stayed overnight at some new person's house, I'd feel uncomfortable. And also accepting someone in our lives, you know, it has to sometimes be a slow process because when you're dating, um, you don't know how things are going to work out. So it's hard to invest into somebody because I know her partners, she knows my partners. It's hard to invest that time into someone if they're not going to be there for very long. There's got to be a lot of um, mindfulness and uh, self-reflection in it too. And realizing that you're responsible for your own emotions and your own reactions. Because mm-hmm. jealousy sometimes happens. It does. We all deal with it. But that's the thing is you can deal with it without it being, you know, the end-all, be-all. It doesn't have to be I'm really jealous or I'm really envious and it's a horrible thing. Mm-hmm. It can be a self-improvement. Yeah, you can't do that because this is how I feel. That's not really right. No, this is how I feel. So I'd like to do something to work on that. 
Very interesting. And that was Darren Ruckel and Donna Harrington, and they are a polyamorous couple. And they have other relationships, but they remain each other's nesting partner. And that is one of the terms that's used in, in polyamorous. He did mention, um, you know, there's this societal myth that, um, you know, men always cheat on women. And that doesn't necessarily happen. But um, we we somehow give women a pass. But women cheat on men as well. Uh, it's just it's just very different. Um and there was a study recently published in the Journal of Sex Research and I identified eight distinct motivations people can have for cheating. And I know this is a little bit um, off the side, but uh, it looked at personality, gender, attachment style, and um, they, had, they had some uh, key findings around committing infidelity and, and sexual desire motivations was one of them. Cheating because you want more or frequent or different sex was common among men. But the problem with this study, and a lot of studies are flawed, this particular study looked at, they surveyed 20-year-old men who were in university. <laughs> what else did they want at that age? Anyway, I digress. We're getting back to uh, polyamorous relationships, and there are a number of polyamorous myths uh, that we need to stop believing because a lot more people are looking at this type of of a relationship. And so myth number one is that polyamory is mostly about having a lot of sex. And that's easy to assume that the appeal of polyamory boils down to sexual relationships. But you even heard in the clip that they talked about emotion and jealousy, and uh, they'd feel uncomfortable if their partner slept over at a new person's um, home. And, you know, that's only natural. We are, you know, we're, you're human. We have emotion. And the first thing that poly people will say is that they aren't into poly polyamory for the sex, or at least it's not just for the sex. It's, it's about loving. Um, it's, it's a certain openness that is not necessarily in other relationship models. And polyamorous people build what they see as a bit of an extended support network, um, where some of the connections, but not necessarily all, involve a sexual component. One of the other myths is it's for people who don't want to commit, and that's untrue. Traditional relationship more more dictates that we shouldn't spread ourselves uh, too thin and instead direct most of our attention, affection. We actually expect one person to be our friend, our lover, our confidant, our financier, our uh, business advisor, our uh, co-parent. We, you know, it's a lot of pressure on people today to be the perfect partner. And so we direct most of our attention, affection, and love toward one other person. But if you've ever struggled to squeeze your significant other into your calendar, you can probably appreciate just how complicated this could get as the number of relationships you're maintaining expands. But what happens in these relationships is that there are uh, this, although this can be a challenge in a polyamorous relationship, you can have somebody who, you know, you feel comfortable talking with, somebody else that you might want to have sex with, somebody else that, you know, you co-parent well together with. So, uh, you know, and the capacity for loving partners deepens as time goes on in these relationships. And um, it's and it's really time uh, spent with another person, but it's the quality of time and the type of time. Just like you have different friends, friends you might want to go uh, stand up paddleboarding with, and somebody else you might want to go biking with, or uh, you know mountain biking with, or skiing with. Uh, you know, it's the same kind of thing. Somebody you want to have sex with, and somebody you want to talk. You know, uh, you know, have a real heady conversation with. 
Um, polyamory is another myth is that polyamory can never really work because humans are jealous by nature and sharing is certainly difficult, especially when it means giving up something that's important to you. Even so, many people assume that poly folks are above feeling jealous, but they are not. The major difference is that poly people learn to respond to feelings of envy with openness. They also have uh, communication styles. They are into this, you know, together there, as you heard, um, the gentleman say that uh, he always knew he was polyamorous. And, and so this is, you know, something that they're navigating and learning all the time. And, you know, it's not that they just sit around and have orgies all the time. Um, It isn't all, it isn't about group sex, you know, and it's not all about sex. So it's not, um, you know, definitely all about that. Yes, of course, it can happen under certain circumstances, but there are many people who never engage in group sex. Um, and it's certainly not something that happens all the time. And another myth is that uh, polyamory is for commitment phobes, but most poly people aren't poly because they're afraid to settle down. In fact, like a lot of the pieces of this poly puzzle, uh, things are much more complicated. So being one of several partners doesn't mean that the partner isn't really committed to the relationship or they can't just be with that one person. It's, um, it's just he's not with the one person all the time or she's not with the one person all the time. And commitment isn't a function of co-living. Uh, commitment is really about being there for somebody. So you can be, you know, have a, a friendship, a committed friendship friends with benefits, maybe. Um, And the other myth is that poly people are are more at risk for STI Uh, because of the sex with, you know, you you might think sex with many different partners uh, is, has a certain risk to it. Well, it could be, um, but polyamorous have a higher incidence of safer sex. So that's good to know. Um, so you might want to jump into bed with somebody who's poly because their chances are they are safer. Uh, and also, you know, there's so many uh, myths around it, but we are defining relationships differently in Canada. Many people find that monogamy is boring. Uh, many women report boredom in the bedroom. Um, you know, but that's not to say that all men want is sex. So I'm going to tell you what men want. When I come back, I'm Maureen McGrath. You're listening to the Sunday Night Health Show. Welcome back to the final stroke of the Sunday Night Health Show. Uh, we've got a few subjects to cover still, so we'll go through it pretty quickly. Uh, just talking about some things that men want. How would I know I'm a woman, but I've talked to enough of you. <laughs> so if I'm wrong, email me, nursedoc at hotmail.com. And I certainly did get some flack for posting uh, what men want uh, when I posted it on Facebook. And, and when we're like, I'm so sick of what men want. Uh, <laughs> But, uh, you know, I think there's a whole lot more of what what women want. Men are always trying to figure out women. But I certain things that I've learned uh, in my clinical practice, and one thing is that men want to be desired as well. Uh, They want you to they want you to let him them know that you are physically attracted to them. And you know what? A compliment here and there isn't a bad thing either, or actually congratulating him on his accomplishments and and demonstrate your pride as well. And, you know, we heard a little bit about dating and dishonesty, but men aren't afraid of honesty and they don't want to feel like they have to change who they are for you. And here's a little tip. You can't change him, so don't even try. You can change yourself and then they might change, but you can never change him. 
men typically are linear in their goals and objectives and have very little appreciation for drama. So I wouldn't advise to come at him broadside, especially if it is something that is irrelevant. They like a little PDA. A lot of men like that, although I do hear from some women that uh, their male partner doesn't like PDA. Uh, They love when women initiate and initiate and initiate. (laughs) So three times for the normal mind. You got that? Uh, Women are linear as well, but women believe that sexual desire comes first, and it doesn't. So I suggest you take a page out of Nike's book. Just do it. If you enjoy it, it's called Responsive Desire. It is a biopsychosocial model that resonates with today's busy woman. And men love that. Never... let a guy think your love is conditional. Remember, he likes his freedom and he remembers it. So don't undermine him or threaten his masculinity and always be authentic. Don't fake anything, especially the big O. And women are so great at faking that. So don't do that. Don't bother. Take time. Actually take time together. And uh, and if you need to engage his assistance, well, that's fine. But uh, ensure that uh, your lovemaking is mutual. And, you know, men love to uh, have you talk dirty to them in bed. So guide him. And they are totally turned on when a woman verbalizes what feels good and and when she feels pleasure. So practice vulnerability, open up and and let go because relationships are important to men, whether they are in a relationship with one person or if they're living a polyamorous lifestyle. And so something else that's really important to men in a different way is their job. You know, men are often defined by the work that they do. And they need to feel successful and they need to feel uh, that they are providing for their family if that's their desire. They need to feel uh, often they like that affirmation uh, that they're doing a good job. They uh, like to make money. They like to make a certain amount of money. They like to, uh, a lot of them, you know, not, not every one of them, which is why I thought this was very interesting. The deaths from cirrhosis of the liver and liver cancer are rising dramatically in the United States and Canada from 1999 to 2016. Annual cirrhosis deaths increased by 65%, 3,400 here in Canada, 34,000 in the U.S. And this was uh, based on a study published in the journal BMJ. And the largest increases were related to alcoholic cirrhosis among people, get this, ages 25 to 34 years old. And this is tied to the recession in 2008 that occurred in the United States big time and a little bit here. From 2009 to 2016, there was a 10.5% annual increase on average in cirrhosis-related mortality among people ages 25 to 34. Cirrhosis of the liver is irreversible scarring of the liver, and one of the uh, causes of uh, cirrhosis of the liver is alcohol consumption. There are other causes as well, obesity, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, and hepatitis. Cirrhosis can lead to liver cancer and liver failure, both of which can be fatal. So although the rates of cirrhosis in some groups declined from 1999 to 2008, that trend reversed in 2009, and that was with the recession. And many men lost their jobs at that time. And men are... Um, you know, less likely to, and many women lost their jobs as well, but women tend to be employed in the service industries and women have a tendency to say, I got to feed the family. I'm going to go out there. I'm going to wait tables. I'm going to be a caregiver. I'm going to be whatever. And a lot of men stayed home with the clicker, a bag of chips and a beer. Um, you know, uh, this is the only thing that uh, they can speculate from this study is that the alcohol consumption increased with the 
um, with the recession. And so um, it could be that economic turmoil that began that year. But nobody is ever certain. But people started dying at increased rates after the year 2008. And young people are more likely to die of alcoholic cirrhosis. And they're is a model of despair in young, unemployed men who are likely to abuse alcohol. So be careful. If your man has lost his job or you are a man and you've lost your job, you know, it's uh, these things happen. Try and ride it out. Never have any shame in, um, you know, pumping gas or going to Safeway do, or construction uh, jobs. You know, there's lots of different jobs on construction sites. Um, anyway, because these deaths of cirrhosis of the liver are completely and entirely preventable. So uh, I thought that was very interesting. I had a little note from a guy, <laughs> and he writes, if I ever tell you about my past, it's never because I want you to feel sorry for me, So you can, it's, but so you can understand why I am who I am. So true. We are the sum total of our experiences and we may have a perception about something um, because of something that potentially happened to you or an experience that you had or a loss that you suffered or a medical condition that you may have had or um, your upbringing or your uh, the parenting that you had. Uh, maybe you lacked empathy at that time. It always reminds me of one of my favorite poems and it's 150 years old at least and the author is unknown. It's grow, be tall, yet reconciled to yourself, the weeping child. Love, be easy and be warm. Find the fire beyond the form. Forgive yourselves, forgive. Sins long dead and learn to live. This is not a rehearsal. Live your best life now. Live in the moment. Appreciate the moment. Be grateful. Be authentic. Love, love, love. Love as many people as you want. And let's not judge those people who are on this journey with us. Remember, my website is backtothebedroom.ca. You can follow me on Twitter at back the number two, the bedroom. And remember, when you stumble on this gravel road of life, make it part of your dance. Andrew, thank you for a bang-up job tonight. And I am Maureen McGrath. You've been listening to the Sunday Night Health Show. You've been listening to a 980 CKNW podcast. Listen live at cknw.com, the Radio Player Canada app, Tune in Amazon Alexa, HD Radio at 101.1 FM HD2, and on the AM dial, 980 CKNW.